as we come now to God's Word. If you'd like to read along with me, I'll be reading from the book of Philippians in chapter 1. That's Paul's letter to the Philippians in the first chapter. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord our God, would you guide our understanding now? By your spirit, would you deepen our knowledge of the truth of the gospel? Help us to desire these things and to see your goodness here. We know that your word is not chained. So Lord, would you work your power in us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the book of Philippians in chapter 1. We'll start in verse 12. Um, I want here to focus on these first few verses. We'll read this entire section and then focus on the the next half of it next week. Uh, But we'll read this whole section here. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, yes, and I will Rejoice. This is God's word. So in reading this section, we've now crossed into the body of the letter of Philippians. Uh, The introduction, those first 11 verses uh, we heard the past couple of weeks, they're an introduction, but they're not just a throwaway. It's not just a dear Philippians and then moving on, he says very significant things in there. So, so we've heard him say that he's thankful for their partnership, or the Greek there's koinonia, uh, their partnership in the gospel, that Christ has really interwoven their lives together through union with him. And then Paul says that he's praying for them, and specifically he says that he's praying for the fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus. In other words, that Christ, by his righteousness, is changing their lives, that the closer they draw to Jesus, the more their lives are changed to be more like him. So now, as he's gone through this introduction, he gets into the body of the letter, and he starts out with the words, I want you to know. Uh, In other words, as he's talked back and forth, he's sending people to the Philippians and they're responding. Uh, This basically is his response to a question that they'd asked him about how he's doing. Paul, how you're doing? And he starts out, 
I want you to know. What's the rest of it? I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, for us, when we hear that, at least for me, maybe you don't wonder this, but I wonder, when he says, what has happened to me, I go, what? What was that? What, what happened to Paul? What's he talking about here? Because it sounds like a pretty big deal, whatever it was. But Paul doesn't elaborate on the details there. He, he just kind of leaves it as it is, probably because the Philippians know what he's talking about. They're familiar with his circumstances and all the details, so he doesn't really need to explain himself more. So we're unsure completely of all of what Paul meant by this in saying, what has happened to me? But it's sufficient for us to know at least Paul is talking about his imprisonment. Just in this small section that we've read, he's mentioned his imprisonment three times. Now, uh, Paul was imprisoned several times throughout his life and ministry, and so it leaves us with the question, where exactly was he? Which imprisonment was this that he's writing from? Uh, some have suggested the region of Caesarea. Uh, some have suggested Ephesus. Most, however, think that Paul here is writing from Rome. Uh, that's what I think as well. So uh, we hear this at the end of, of the book of Acts, that Paul, as he's uh, been imprisoned and now uh, appeals to Caesar and is brought to Rome. So this, uh, he, uh, Luke tells us in the book of Acts in chapter 28, he says this starting in verse 16. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when he gathered them, he said to them, Brothers, Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they'd examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I've asked to see you and to speak with you since it's because of the hope in Israel, that it's because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. He talks a bit more about this, but the summary is here at the end. Verse 30, he says this, or Luke tells us this. He, Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So here's a summary of what we've heard. Uh, Paul's put under house arrest here. It's different than all, some other forms of, of prison, uh, but he's in Rome about two years at the time of the writing of Acts. And even though he's in house arrest, he's still uh, able to receive visitors. People can come and go and see him. Uh, he's still proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's still teaching about Jesus, and he's still writing letters to the churches that he had visited. All of this, by the way, is happening in the very last words of Acts, without hindrance. I love that there. 
There's an irony there that even though Paul currently is in chains, in prison, in another sense, he is unchained and unhindered. We see a similar dynamic in the Old Testament nation of Israel. Uh, So if you read all the way through, it would take a long time because it's a, a bunch of chapters, but if you read all the way through the period of the kings, so from 1 Samuel through 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and to the end of 2 Kings, you'll see that the nation of Israel uh, is exiled. They are put into chains. The bulk of them, the people, the tribes of Israel, are put into chains by Assyria. This happened in 722 BC. We even know the specific date. And left one tiny little tribe, a remnant. But then even that remnant, the tribe of Judah, was put into chains and exiled by Babylon in 586 BC. This is slightly different than Paul's circumstance because uh, their exile, their chains were a result of justice, not injustice. This is God's punishment upon them for sin. But when we reach the final chapter of 2 Kings, if I can get there, this is 2 Kings in 25. You could see uh, that, that they're basically left with nothing. The Babylonians come in and burn the temple. They burn the city of Jerusalem, and, and, and they put out the eyes of the king, uh, which is uh, gross-sounding but important for us. And, and the whole sense of the book is that they're just sort of spiraling downward in this prison of despair. And the reader might read this and go, God, what is happening here? What are you doing here? What's happening with your people here? What happened to your promise to David that you would establish his throne forever? But then we run into the very final verses of of this exile in 2 Kings Chapter 25, here's the final words of this book, verse 27. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, Evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him, and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. So at the end here, the nation of Israel is still in exile. They are still displaced out of their homes. But the king of Judah is told to put off his prison clothes. In fact, king of Judah, come come eat at the table of the king of Babylon. It says that the king of Babylon literally lifted up his head. And for the nation of Israel, there's just a glimmer of hope. 
that even as they are in chains, in some small sense, they are unchained. That God has not abandoned them. That God has not lost track of his promises. That God is still working and active. And God is advancing his story. Paul knows that this is also true. Now, a thousand years later, well, less so, 500 years later in his context. So later when Paul's in prison, the final time as he writes the final book uh, recorded in Scripture, in the second letter to Timothy, he says just one verse here, 2 Timothy 2, verse 9. He says, remember Jesus, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but... The word of God is not bound. Hmm. Remember Jesus, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. I have chains, but God is not chained. Ever. God is not imprisoned. God is not held hostage. God is not arrested. He is unbound and unhindered. And so even when there is suffering on our part, there's still hope. Now, back in the context of Philippians, how does this fit? This is a different prison context than he's talking about to Timothy. That was a really rough prison uh, there. But in Philippians, whatever prison context, it seems as if there's less agony there. He's likely under house arrest. It's a little easier prison sentence, but he's still in prison. And yet, while he's in prison, he's hopeful. He's even rejoicing. And I want to know why. He tells us. He actually answers that question for us. Why is he rejoicing? Look at the answer. It's in the outcome Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, in other words, his prison sentence and possibly other things, has really served to advance the gospel. And then in the verses after that, he says that the gospel is advanced in really two ways. One's in an external sense, impacting what he calls the imperial guard, and one's in an internal sense, impacting the Christian brothers. And in both of those things, we see the gospel unchained. So let's look at both of those situations because I think they're helpful. both of them are helpful for us. Let's look at the external effect of the advancing the gospel. He says, verse 13, uh, that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard. That uh, phrase, imperial guard, some translations call it the palace guard, or my personal favorite, uh, the praetorium, just because... Well, that's a cool sounding word. Uh, but the Praetorium, whatever we call it, is this group of several thousand military troops. And so as Paul's likely under house arrest or some sort of prison, uh, these guards would come in in four-hour shifts, uh, night and day, in rotation, just to watch over him and make sure that he doesn't leave. And so it's likely that many of these same guys would return week after week, month after month, and you get to know a person uh, during that time. You get to see him regularly and up close. And through their contact with Paul then, 
they have contact with the gospel of Jesus. Paul doesn't tell us how that happens exactly, but we could imagine that they probably talked. This is not the British guard out front that have the tall hats and can't move. They probably, you know, at some point went, so what are you in for? You know, I'd be curious. And, and you know, you can imagine what Paul would say, you know, I follow Jesus. Ah, who's, who's Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And that that sort of produced some sort of conversation. Uh, likely, uh, even more than just conversation, they get to see his life. To see a person who's really filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus. So while they're watching this man who's in, unjustly in prison, instead of seeing him consumed by frustration, they're seeing him oddly filled with the joy of Jesus. And in seeing someone who is slowly growing bitter, they're watching someone who is growing in their trust in Jesus. And instead of seeing someone who would turn inward and pitying themselves as I might do, they're watching someone who is turning outward and praying for others. And over time, you can imagine that the guard might go, what is with this guy? Either he is entirely off his rocker and does not understand the gravity of his situation, or he knows something we don't. Now, Paul doesn't say here that any of these imperial guard were converted. He doesn't tell us whether they'd come to faith in Jesus. He just says that his situation became known for Jesus. In other words, he became sort of a buzz topic of conversation around the water cooler, whatever that is for the Imperial Guard. Uh, that's what they were talking about. Hey, have you seen this guy, Paul? Weird, right? So part of the advancement of the gospel is talk. It's actually encouraging to me. I guess we don't have to get discouraged when our discussion of Jesus ends up being just conversation. We don't have to pitch Jesus and sell him to someone as if he were a car to be bought. We just want them to know him and pray that they would come to him by faith. But here, at least, it's just talk. Now, perhaps some of them actually did come to faith in Jesus. He says um, that it became known throughout the whole Imperial Guard and to all the rest. And he doesn't name who that is. Someone else is also receiving this. Uh, but, but perhaps some of these rest uh, came to faith in Jesus. At the end of the letter, he says, the very last, the closing, chapter 4, verse um, 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus, Paul says. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Take that in for just a moment. As all the saints, especially some of the saints of Caesar's household, greet you. Because of Paul's imprisonment, the gospel of Jesus has advanced all the way into the living room of the Caesar, perhaps the most important person in the world at that time. 
So there's the external impact of the advancement of the gospel, but there's also an internal impact, he says here. Where is it? Verse 14. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. He says most of them are more confident now. He says later they're bolder and they're speaking the word of God without fear. He's not just saying this might happen. He's saying this is happening among the Christian brothers, internally amongst Christians. Now, that effect to me is interesting, that they became bolder. Because at least in my mind, I might assume that to see someone imprisoned for their faith would have the opposite effect for me. That I would actually lose my confidence and boldness that I would actually grow in fear to share the things of Jesus. And perhaps that was the case for some, on some level, that they grew in fear, but there is something far greater happening in them. Many of you know that I spent a summer in Alaska back when I was a young, wild college student, and you can go to places like Alaska. And, uh, and so part of the wildness was a bunch of us went to jump, uh, I guess cliff jumping, I don't know what it's called. I climb up this section and there's a waterfall just gushing over the edge into this sizable pool. And there's a rope and, and, a, and a rock on the end of it so you could lower it down and see how deep it was, just to check. But several of us, you know, climb up this, and I, I'm bad at numbers, maybe 30 feet up in the air. It was high. Uh, it, maybe it's bigger in my mind. But once we got up there, this big pool looked like a, like a teacup. I'm not going to fit in that. And, and someone said, don't jump too far. You're going to hit the rocks. Oh, good. So, so all of us, a bunch of you know, young men are all trying to pretend like we're not scared of this and everyone's kind of just hot, kind of joking, but we all kind of want to do it, but we're very nervous. And, and so eventually, someone jumps. Now it's all scary, it's high. There's a lot of unknowns here, but after that first jump, we're all still scared. But it takes just enough of the edge of, just enough off of the edge of fear that I now go, all right, I, I want in. And you get a similar sense that that was the case for Paul. That, that by the, the power of God, by the call of God, Paul jumped. And now that he's in the pool, Paul shouts back up to the rest saying, look, I'm imprisoned in chains here and some are going to call me insane for this. But I get to see the work of God unchained through me. Don't you want to be part of this? Don't you want to see what God is doing? Hold on to Jesus and jump. Do not wait. Do not worry about how little you feel you know. Don't be scared by the threat of chains, by the strength of Jesus. Speak up and jump. Open your mouth and proclaim Jesus. Jump. Jesus is the Lord of all, so jump. Jump. 
And they did. One after another. The brothers became confident in the Lord to speak the truth of Jesus. What happened in Paul's imprisonment served to advance the gospel as God worked internally in the lives of Christians. Now, I want us to notice one final thing about this. Both of these outcomes, both the external outcome in that the, those who aren't currently Christians, the Imperial Guard, are coming to know Jesus, at least know of him through Paul, and internally that the brothers who are Christians are, are coming to speak Christ more boldly, both of these outcomes, in neither of them, is Paul benefited at least not directly, Paul receives no benefit. The direct benefit of of his imprisonment is that others are impacted to hear and know Jesus. And Paul seems to be okay with that, even on some level glad about that. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. But I wonder if Paul was ever tempted to think, Lord, I'm so glad that my imprisonment is serving others. But what about me? I mean, Lord, I didn't ask for this prison. I didn't want this. It feels like there there couldn't there have been another way for this. Lord, in some sense, it feels like You threw me to the dogs so that you would save others from getting bitten. And now I have all these bite marks and I feel a little cheated and alone and in chains. I wonder if those thoughts ever crossed his mind. If that sin would want to take root in his heart. I know that feeling. Perhaps you know the feeling. You face the loss of a job. And go, Lord, why have you given me these chains? You face a struggle with a disability. Lord, why have you given me these chains? You're facing cancer or even death. Lord, why have you given me these chains? Parenting and marriage is way harder than you've expected. And Lord, why have you given me these chains? The reality is, it may indeed be the case that for the sake of Christ, these chains might be to serve others in advancing the gospel. We know that to be the case because as we see others in chains, Christians, even in the midst of grief and suffering, we also see them hold close to Jesus. Or maybe a better way to say it is we also see them, we see Jesus holding close to them. And as we see that play out, 
It's a beautiful challenge and encouragement to the rest of us to see the strength of the arm of Jesus in his power unchained in a chained situation. I know this is true. Many times by many of you already I have been encouraged over my months here to see the work of Jesus played out in hard things in your life. And in the situation of our brother, Andrew Brunson, and now a year and a half in Turkey, in prison, it just seems unfathomable, impossible that he could hold on to faith, and yet he is writing songs about the worthiness of Jesus. We're seeing the power of Christ there. This is not just positive thinking. It's not just, hey, look on the bright side of this. There is real struggle, real hardship, real pain. It's not positive thinking. It's what we could call instead prize thinking. Prize thinking later in chapter 3, as we get to it in coming months probably, um, Paul says, I, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the call of God in Christ. In other words, this prize, this, it, it shows us to, that we value what we value. We want that to be what really matters, that he would bring us to hold on to what's worthwhile even in the midst of chains. That's how Andrew Brunson is able to sing Jesus, my joy, you are the prize I'm running for. So we see in the lives of Andrew Brunson and in Paul and the Philippians and in us that even while the chains are of certainly great benefit to others, it's not only for others. It's not only for the sake of the Imperial Guard and for strengthening the brothers. The one who is chained himself is not abandoned or left alone in those chains. The one in chains, through that experience, God is producing in them a unique kind of joy that many could only dream of. And isn't that worth it? To be drawn into the prize of joy that can only be found in Jesus. That helps me to think differently about chains and not want to shun them, but actually see them as God's work in and through me. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served the, to advance the gospel of Jesus. That as a Lord, he would help us all to see and know the true source of our hope in him. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word and for your encouragement and the truth of the gospel, even in the midst of very hard things. Help us, Lord, to grow confident in you. Help us, Lord, to boldly speak the word without fear, 
because you are our prize. Thank you for your great gifts to us in Jesus. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.